0: For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love, and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind, entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them, is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight to fighting two crusades to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favored few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart King John and all the remarkable people surrounding them to be in their presence is an exhilarating experience
1: Won't you join us? Welcome back to Lion's Forge My name is Beckett and I want to tell you a story an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen Episode 10 1147, to the east. Louis, Eleanor, and the French needed more than a year to prepare. But Conrad, with a far later start, seems to have benefited from the 12th century version of German efficiency. He assembled his entire army in a mere five months. The best estimates now are that there were about 30,000 German combatants. Of which some 6,000 were knights. The French forces numbered some 45,000. In addition, there were some 10,000 non combatants planning to follow along, from Queen Eleanor and her entourage of noble ladies to pilgrims who, rather mistakenly, viewed the crusade as their best chance to make it safely to Jerusalem. The two forces met in early February 1147 in northeast France, near the site where the Romans had beaten back Attila and his Huns a thousand years before. Perhaps it was hoped that the historic good fortune of the place would bless this new army setting out to defeat the Saracens. All agreed that their goal was to retake fallen Edessa, lost on Christmas Eve of 1144 to the brilliant Zengi that invaluable keystone of the Latin East had to be reset. We thus have before us the picture of some 85,000 individuals and their support networks preparing to travel east. They were en route to the greatest western city in the world of the 12th century, the fabulous walls of Constantinople, the 2,000-year-old capital of the late Roman And then the Byzantine worlds. One of the most fabled cities on earth. It lay at the easternmost tip of Europe on the shores of the great natural harbor called the Golden Horn, and faced across the narrow blue green waters of the Bosphorus into Asia. Massively larger than any European city then in existence, wealthy thanks to growing trade between East and West. And an advanced tax system that fed from it, Constantinople was glorious. Russian envoys had enviously written home two centuries before that they didn't know if they were in heaven or on earth after entering the doors of the magnificent Cathedral de Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. To get there, both armies and their immense wagon trains, swollen by Eleanor's entourage, would have to cross half of Europe, along with the better part of Byzantium. There were two accepted routes. One was to slide south into Italy and then go by ship across the Mediterranean, departing from the east coast of Italy. If your ship didn't go down in a storm or torture you nearly to despair with seasickness, the sea route was a quicker trip easier on men and animals. Unfortunately, it was frighteningly expensive, especially when tens of thousands had to book passage. Roger, king of Sicily, who controlled the eastern ports, unmistakably favored this approach, so clearly of potential benefit to resident shipbuilders, merchants, and prostitutes. However, Roger and Conrad vehemently disliked each other, which made it unlikely that the Germans would go by sea. The Byzantine emperor, Manuel Comnenus, who hated Roger even more than the Germans did, argued in favor of the well-known land route which had been used 50 years before during the First Crusade. Conrad and Louis agreed. The two would cross Europe separately and meet in Constantinople, forming a giant invasion force to battle the infidels. Let us consider even 20,000 armed men, possibly somewhat short on both discipline and training, heading anywhere at the same time. They would in turn take their personal support systems, servants, blacksmiths, arrow makers, chaplains, and stalwart men to carry the boats overland, not to mention the women who have always followed armies, some to watch over their husbands and some to watch over other people's. Supplies and attendance would require hundreds of carts, which in turn would mean thousands of pack animals. Medieval soldiers did not benefit from computerized supply lines, but they still intended to eat every day. And there were thousands of horses and mules who felt the same way. After eating, both humans and animals would need to relieve themselves. They would need places to sleep, water to drink that as far as possible was not befouled, and firewood to keep warm. No matter how theoretically friendly the inhabitants were along the way, it would be difficult to view an army's arrival, especially a foreign army's, with anything except well-placed apprehension, a queasy feeling which, as we will see, could quickly shift into outright dread. Having agreed to take the land route, Conrad and his army left the middle of modern-day Germany in May 1147, moving along the Rhine, then south down the Danube, east across the Kingdom of Hungary, and then southeast through the mountain-rattled Balkans, where the travelers passed into the Byzantine Empire. The French were about a month behind the Germans, departing their country after a spectacular ceremony at the Cathedral of Saint-Denis to bless Louis's great undertaking. It took the Crusaders the entire summer to cover the thousand-odd miles to Constantinople. It must have been an incredible sight, a sea of men marching, their iron lances glinting like dragonflies, knights shifting in their saddles as the breeze caught their battle flags. Pillars of dust mixed with smoke, rising a quarter mile up into the dry, sun-glazed air. The ground groaning and flexing to the step of sixty thousand human feet. You would have heard them long before you saw them. The slowly gathering confused din of creaking stirrups and roughly sewn boots. Horses snorting in the dusty air as they picked their way over the stony ground. Massive wooden carts clanking, axes biting into trees, and thousands upon thousands of human voices talking, laughing, swearing, complaining. Odo of Dieu, Louise Chaplin, wrote a colorful account of their journey across Europe. A troubling theme, mentioned repeatedly, was the lack of discipline in both armies, Louis' efforts at control in particular appeared to have been dismally unsuccessful. He was even reportedly unable to stop his own brother Robert from abducting a noblewoman who rode with the army as the promised bride of one of the Byzantine emperor's relatives. Given this engulfing lack of discipline, stupid quarrels among crusaders and between soldiers and civilians along the way were a constant problem sometimes ending in people getting killed. It's not unlikely that Eleanor, with her deep connection to the large Aquitanian contingent, grew increasingly aware of her husband's inability to control his army. It may have fueled her eventual grievances against him, grievances which would come to a head in Antioch. The royal couple probably spent little time together en route. Louis's personal companions were said to be Odo and Louis's lifelong bodyguard, a eunuch named Thierry Galeran. Chroniclers reported that the two men were the ones who shared Louis's tent every night. Galeran's physical state may have lifted him out of the peasantry, since it was firmly believed that eunuchs had no dynastic ambitions of their own, thus guaranteeing total personal loyalty. Louis obviously enjoyed the man's company, trusting him not only as a bodyguard, but as something of a personal advisor. According to chroniclers, galleran did not like Alenor, and Alenor returned the compliment. While Louis spent his time with his chaplain, his eunuch, and his knights, we can assume Alenor traveled with her own rather more jolly companions, fellow Aquitanians, Whose boisterous sense of humor and fondness for stories, wine, and music matched her own. Every day would bring new things to see, new smells and sounds, the ladies traveling sometimes on horseback, sometimes on litters carried by men servants. In the evenings, under black skies frosted by moonlight, her knights would ease out of the line of march to come back to pay their respects and to flirt with the loveliest women within a thousand miles. Troubadours, expressly forbidden by papal edict, were there anyway, toasting the laughing beauties whose valor was claimed to outshine the legendary Amazons. If Eleanor found this epic journey vastly diverting, Odo was not a happy traveler. His chronicle makes frequent references to mud, floods, desolate country and the cunning malice of foreigners. He hated his German allies, since he claimed they wouldn't allow the French to buy anything until the Germans got enough for themselves. As supplies got tighter, prices surged for everything. Louis was writing back to Suger, his regent in Paris, asking for yet more money before even getting out of Hungary. Odo's reports reached something of a crescendo of xenophobia when the French crossed into Byzantium, populated by what he called the Greeks, described as miserly cheats who refused to provide adequate supplies to the passing army, even though they lived in a, quote, beautiful and wealthy land, unquote. The lack of hospitality among the natives isn't hard to fathom. Odo writes with startling honesty. That since the Europeans considered the local population not to be Christians, they determined that killing them was of no importance. No wonder the frightened locals would sell only meager amounts of food in small baskets lowered at the ends of ropes from the town walls, or that a drunken crusader who stumbled off from his companions after dusk could end up hacked to death beside the road. The emperor. Manuel Comnenus, buffeted with reports of constant European crimes against his people, was turning into a most unhappy host. True, his country had happily welcomed the first crusade fifty years before, but that crusade had begun on an entirely different note. That time, the Byzantine emperor had begged the West for military aid against the terrifying Moors. This time, Europeans were streaming toward Constantinople primarily because of the loss of their Edessa and their worries about what Edessa's fall might mean to them. Manuel Comnenus was accordingly mired in a quandary that would vex even the most pragmatic of kings. He hadn't asked for help, but still, the idea of Europeans taking on the Muslim army held real appeal he accordingly had volunteered that the Europeans could travel through his lands. But now that they were really arriving in their thousands, he was as jumpy as a gazelle in a wildfire. There were a great many reasons for him to feel uneasy, and they were being compounded by the day. For one thing, no love had ever been lost between Constantinople and the capitals of Europe, thanks to the constant lack of European deference to the Byzantines, who rightfully saw themselves as a great imperial power, with a history linked to Rome itself. Then, too, there was an unhappy record of mutual grudges that dated back to that first crusade. Europeans had plundered, murdered, and raped like savages when they crossed Byzantium back in 1096. The emperor of the time, Manuel's grandfather, Alexius, got even by offering little help when the crusaders were in the thick of their brutal battle to take the Muslim stronghold of Antioch. Now this new mob of crusaders was grabbing what they wanted as they pounded their way across the country. Half of Manuel's empire raged about the damage being done to their fields, markets, olive groves, wells, flocks, and daughters. Another thorn in the Byzantine side was their deeply unpleasant relationship with Roger of Sicily. The Byzantines liked to think that the island kingdom of Sicily as rightfully theirs, a belief that went back the better part of a millennium, even if their conviction was not always supported by fact. At present, their view was frankly not at all supported by fact, since Sicily was controlled by Roger and his Normans people from the far-off forests of northern Europe, who were infused with a good deal of Viking blood. The Normans were as ferociously bellicose as fire ants. Just ask the Saxons what they thought about a Norman named William the Conqueror. Normans had fought in the First Crusade, and there were old rumors, probably true, that they had plotted to attack the Byzantine capital when they had last been in its sights, a half-century before. While they hadn't done it, they had taken hold in Sicily, just over the Byzantine horizon, pushing the Byzantines aside. Now here was a new flood of Norman crusaders sweeping across his lands, and Manuel's anxieties on that score probably weren't relieved when Roger decided to raid hard along Manuel's coastline at the same time. The emperor must have belatedly considered what it meant if tens of thousands of these semi-barbarians from the west, with marginal levels of discipline and low thresholds of boredom, were going to camp outside his fabulous walls. Louis and his army reached the magnificent city on October 4th, 1147, a month behind the Germans, who'd been the worse of the two as they traveled across Manuel's lands. They had already been forcibly urged by Manuel to take themselves east across the Bosphorus, away from the precious capital. But while he'd had sped Conrad and the Germans off to the east with a haste that bordered on the insulting, he and his European wife, Empress Irene, born as the less regal Bertha of Bavaria, were more gracious to the Capets. When Louis arrived at his gates Manuel sent a reception committee worthy of the visiting monarch, whom he received at his palace with an imperial kiss of peace. The French were staggered by the wonders of Constantinople. Even hypercritical Odo admitted to being vastly impressed by the city, commenting on its beautifully decorated buildings, the abundance of fresh water stored in tremendous underground reservoirs, and carried through the city by a system of buried pipes, astonishing markets, beautiful churches, and what he described as, quote, the unprecedented triple pleasure of seeing the sea, the countryside, and the city itself from the roof of the imperial palace of Black Arnais, unquote. While we sadly can't know if it's true, an epic poem written years later describes enchanting golden figures of children crowning the palace, each capable of lifelike laughter and of music played upon ivory horns whenever the wind blew. We do know that the imperial throne could be elevated up into the air thanks to a system of screws and levers, and that the emperor enjoyed the roaring of mechanical lions and the singing of mechanical birds perched in trees made of gold, so the idea of mechanical children playing on the roof isn't entirely improbable. Shaded by prized trees, cooled by fountains, every turn of every walkway held new riches for astonished European eyes. Every color of skin and every type of dress known to the world walked the streets in this place markets offered unknown spices cardamom coriander saffron cumin candied rose petals louis's host manuel was a contemporary of louis barely 30 years old according to mosaic images he was tall slender dark and quite handsome having outlived three older brothers to gain the throne he was considered generous brave, energetic, brilliantly intelligent. He had studied medicine and was fond of such sophisticated entertainments as tournaments and theatrical performances. One might sit with him and debate Aristotelian ethics over platters of melon and honeycomb while fountains splash softly in the background. One does wonder what Eleanor thought of her engaging, attractive host and he of her the Storied Young European Beauty Manuel made time to tour the city's graceful, leafy streets with Louis, showing him the priceless relics so dear to Louis's heart. The holy lance that pierced Christ's side. The crown of thorns. The magi's gifts to the baby Jesus. The stone that had been rolled from the door of his tomb on the first Easter Sunday. The French royal retinue also saw the incredible wonders of Hagia Sophia, lit by ten thousand candles, and the imperial palace, so grand that even Odo was thrilled, writing feverishly that it surpassed anything he had ever seen. Nightly banquets were supreme examples of the imperial couple's hospitality. The food would have been a revelation in itself to the French. There was meat dusted with za'atar, a spicy, aromatic blend of thyme, cumin, roasted chickpeas, pomegranate juice, and lemony sumac. Perhaps they ate warm, cheese-filled pastries soaked in orange-scented syrup, or a dish where cubes of lamb fat were baked to flavor the traditional combination of ground meat, minced onion, and bulgur wheat desserts of honeycomb were garnished with dried rose petals it might even have been their good fortune to feast on the seasonal treat of wild thistles called akub but even the jaded urbanites of this incredible city must have stopped dead as eleanor's contingent clattered by on horseback described by one who saw them as dressed like men armed with lances and battle-axes bold as amazons we can even catch a glimpse of Eleanor herself, quote, richly dressed, elegant in her bearing, unquote, wearing golden boots that radiated the sun itself. The Byzantine chronicler Nicetos Coniates compared her to Panthesilia, the legendary queen of the Amazons. The riches and grandeur of Constantinople were so dazzling that the hospitality of the imperial court may have inadvertently spawned the accusations of treachery Europeans later hurled at Manuel and the Byzantines. If this man ruled such a wealthy and beautiful city, surely his resources were limitless. By definition, then, it should be the merest trifle to the Byzantines to arm, feed, and reinforce the crusading armies whenever they needed his help a European assessment which would spawn a deep sense of betrayal when such help was not always forthcoming. For gracious host he may have been, but Manuel was above all a masterful dissembler. He had to be. He ruled an empire that faced perpetual threat on two fronts, to the east from the Muslims and to the west from the Normans ensconced in the Mediterranean nor did he believe that his supposedly friendly European visitors could ever be entirely trusted not to turn on his wondrous city. The existence of the Crusader states at his end of the Mediterranean were ready evidence of European interest in occupying lands they took from others. Manuel was therefore inherently disinclined to be overly friendly to his friends or overly hostile to his enemies. Keeping everyone off base was the essence of his strategic plan. Even as he toasted the Capes at glorious banquets, he had a peace treaty with the Moors back on his desk. The chronicler Coniates said outright that Manuel encouraged Turkish attacks on the Crusaders, a startling report confirmed some years later by another Eastern chronicler, Michael the Syrian, who wrote that the Emperor worked in concert with the Turks to slow the Europeans. And so, within two weeks of their arrival, the time came for the Byzantines to say an affable, if definitive, farewell to the French. Manuel Komnenos sent this second wave of annoying Westerners off across the Bosphorus, scrambling up and down its steep, rocky banks. As they went, the French were rustling with an unaccustomed sense of unease. There had been a partial eclipse of the sun, which everyone feared as a signal of evil to come. And in his haste to move everyone along, Manuel had deprived the two armies of the chance to meet in Constantinople and make plans for their campaign against one of the toughest fighting forces in the world. Separated by several weeks, effectively as disconnected as if one of them were on the moon, the Germans and the French were each on their own. The Saracens lay ahead. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Nabb. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again, October 2nd, for the next episode of Lion's Forge. Available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and now on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me.